Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. Yaakov Avinu was now ready to marry. He knew who his bashert was. He didn't know the exact person, but he knew various signs. He got to the well, and immediately, as soon as he saw this person, he knew that this was the right person. And despite his joy, and despite the tremendous sense of completion, that he was now ready to embark on the next stage of his life, the Pesach says, He raised his voice and he cried. He let out a wail, a loud, demonstrative cry. And Rashi explains why. Because he saw with Ruach HaKodesh, prophetically he saw, that she was not going to enter with him Bikvura. He recognized the fact that this woman was his Bashar, they would marry, but she would be buried along the way. <clears throat> the reason being so that she should daven for the Klai's role, but the point is that Kfuru would not be together, they would not be buried together, and therefore he raised his voice in a cry. This Rashi is very difficult to understand. Number one, it seems a bit odd. You meet your Kala, and the first thing you see, Baruch HaKodesh, is that you're not going to be buried together with her. And let's say, in fact, it's true that you won't be. Is that a reason to cry? You raise your voice in a cry, a wail, a wail. As a matter of fact, the Achronim explained that the reason why Rashi brought another reason why Yaakov cried was because it couldn't possibly be this was the only reason, because she would see it, and it wouldn't be appropriate to tell your Kala that she's not going to be buried with you. And therefore, the Achronim explained that Rashi brings another reason. The other reason why he cried was because, because he came empty-handed. He didn't have a gift for the Kala. But here's the question. <clears throat> Number one, why is this the focal point over here? <clears throat> for whatever reason, he sees it, he sees it. But surely, why should this bring him to cry? It may not be the most ideal situation, but your life together will be together. You found your Bashert, and you found the person you're meant to be with, you're destined to be with, you're not buried with her, therefore what? Why are you crying? And I'd like to see if we could better understand why in fact Yaakovina raised his voice in a cry. And to focus on this, let's go back for a minute to what the Rashi's Chachma brings in the name of the Zohar, that when the Baskol comes out 40 days before a person is born, it doesn't mean, explains Rashi's Chachma, that Hashem takes two individuals and match the, them up. It doesn't mean that Hashem finds the closest person to fit together with you, but rather that at the beginning, Hashem creates the neshama together. Two neshamas joined together. And then Hashem separates them and puts them into different lives, into different bodies, into different genders. And the reason why the Baskol says, <clears throat> 40 days before the man is born, Bito Shaploni Laploni is because this is your other half, created with you, at the same time separated, put into a different body, into a different life. Then the two you're supposed to find each other, and then for eternity remain together. The challenge of marriage is that the man and the woman are very different. You see, the fact is that Hashem takes that neshama, which is one, and puts it into two different lives. And each person brought up in a different home with different tendencies, different inclinations, different training, different outlook is different. But far more profound are the differences based on gender. One is a male, the other is a female, and they are vastly different, and they have different needs, interests, inclinations, and the great challenge is to bring them together. And at the same time that the difference between man and woman is the great challenge. It's also part of the force 
that allows them to come together. Hashem creates everything balanced and everything equal. As different as man is from woman are the forces that pull them together. And Hashem wants us to succeed. And Hashem gave us various forces that we have to use. There's infatuation, there's romantic love, there's physical relations, there's appreciation. All of the differences between man and woman, as different as they are, are the forces of attraction that pull them together. And again, ultimately the goal is to be united. But this is where the world makes a mistake. The world says, we fell in love, so we got married. Then we fell out of love, so we got unmarried. It's logical, and it makes sense. By the way, the Torah views a marriage has nothing to do with the way the outside world views a marriage. Romantic love, infatuation, physical attraction, physical intimacy are all tools, but they are but mere tools to bring to the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is a unity, a oneness. And if you'd like to understand that relationship, it's brought in the Gemara, it's one of the Sheva Brachas. We say the word, Be joyful, be happy, you reyim ahuvim. And Rashi explains what those words mean. Reim ahuvim, nachosim vakala, who are friends who love one another. The bracha that we give the chasen and the kala during the sheva brachas, one of them is that you should be joyful, you should be happy. Who? Friends who love each other. And the way Chazal view the couple, that is the relationship. Reim ahuvim, best friends who love one another. And this relationship of man and woman, husband and wife, is the closest relationship, the closest relative. The joining together comes through the male and female differences, the attraction, the infatuation, the romantic love comes through that as a vehicle. But the goal is a complete bonding, a oneness, friends who love one another. In the ultimate level, the physical attraction, the physical dimension isn't needed. They have couples like Avram Avinu and Sarimenu where it was almost irrelevant. For the rest of us, the rest of humanity, it's, it's a vital, essential key, but it's exactly that, a tool, a method to get to the ultimate bonding, and the ultimate bonding is an attachment of two souls, Reim Ahuvim, friends who love each other. Friends who support each other, friends who are attached, friends who care deeply about one another, and friends who are one unit together forever. They began together. In this world, their job is to come back together as friends who love each other, and then for eternity, they are together again. And I believe that's the answer for Yaakov Avinu. You see, Yaakov Avinu was miles and miles above the physical. And when he looked at this woman, it was in a woman, as a woman in some level, but he looked at her as his soulmate, as a person with whom he was to share this world and the world to come. The physical was but minor of minor, but there was a little pagam, there was a little bit of a flaw in the perfect union, because they wouldn't be buried together. Yes, they'd be together, yes, they'd physically live together, but at the end, she'd be buried apart. And that caused him to cry because there was something lacking, there was something missing. And if you'd like to see a beautiful, sensitive neshama crying, when Yaakovinu cried, it was because there was something lacking in the total attachment. And it wasn't that they as a couple wouldn't be attached, but it wasn't full, it wasn't complete. His kala wouldn't be buried with him. And when you view the world from different eyes, when you view the world from... 35,000 feet from an Olam Haba perspective, from an other world perspective, these things are part of the picture. It's a slight flaw. There's something missing. And as a result of it, he cried. But the point I think that's essential for us to bring to bear on our marriages and our situation is the way Chazal viewed the relationship. We're not going to be Yaakov Avinu. But this relationship of Reim Ahuvim, 
of friends who love one another is the defining criteria and understanding of the relationship. And if you understand it from that perspective, you understand a lot of the trouble that couples get into. You see, first and foremost, your spouse is a friend. A friend is one who looks out for the welfare of the other one. A friend is one who supports the other. A friend is one who's there for the other. However, a friend is not a teacher, not a mentor, not a trainer. A friend is not responsible for the moral or ethical accomplishments of the other. A friend is not accountable for the way the other dresses or does things. And a friend doesn't criticize, scold, lecture, or demean. Very often, newlywed couples will express the following line. We fight so often about such petty things. Listen, I'm not a difficult person. I never had trouble getting along with people. She brings out the worst in me. It's him, it's her, and they both say it. And I believe a big part of the problem is that couples, especially in the beginning, misunderstand their relationship one to the other and misunderstand the whole concept of marriage. You see, when a friend doesn't act as a friend, but a friend takes on a different role altogether, they're violating the relationship. The relationship of marriage is friends who love each other. Friends first, who are lovers second. And I'll share with you exactly what I mean. Imagine the following. Imagine you're married for 10 years, and you're a woman, and one evening your husband comes home and says, you know, Dear, you know that secretary in my office? And you say, you mean the young, pretty one? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Well, I hope you don't mind, uh, and I certainly assume you're not going to find it offensive, but you know, she and I, we've become friends. You know, we just see things in the same way, and uh, I mean, it's not that I'm interested in her or anything, but we take walks together during our breaks, and we talk, and you know, kind of during lunch, we spend a lot of time together, you know, just as friends, nothing serious. I mean, too, we go out a few times a week, and uh, and we do see each other on weekends, and I, I, we send each other gifts and cards, and nothing romantic, just just as friends. Well, I mean, the only reason I'm telling this is because, you know, we always have had an open marriage, an open relationship, so I just want you to know, you know, I'm going to be traveling, you know, next weekend to Vegas, so she and I are going to be going together during that week-long conference, okay? Now, if in fact your husband said that to you, I sure hope that you would not be okay with that. Because that is an example of stepping outside the bonds of marriage. There's an agreement, tacit and expressed, that certain behaviors are unacceptable. If your husband has an interest, a romantic interest, outside of the marriage, he's breaking the covenant of marriage. And while that, I believe, is pretty obvious and most of us understand it, there's another situation which parallels it that I think most people, certainly newly married, don't get. I want you to imagine the following case. A woman is home, she's making supper, and married for a good number of years now. Three kids they have are jumping all around the apartment, pulling down the sarum and jumping and running. The husband, he's sitting on the couch, lounging, reading the newspaper. She's sitting in the kitchen, the wife, and she's fuming. She's furious. The kids are running and jumping and tearing the place apart. And finally, she runs over and runs over to the couch and says, All right, mister, make your choice. You either take care of the kids or you cook the supper, but you're not lying there on the couch. Okay. Now, what would you say? I believe that everyone would agree that in that case, she's right and he's a creep. As a matter of fact, ask most women, they would say that what she did was wise and courageous. She stood up for her rights. And it is true. What he was doing was being a creep. In a sense, she's right. And yet what she did was very, very foolish. And I'll explain to you why. Because you see, a successful marriage isn't about being right. But a successful marriage is about being successfully married. You see, let's go over a little bit what he hears when she says those words. What he hears very clearly is someone pointing a finger at him and saying the words, all right, mister, make your choice. You're either taking care of the kids or you're cooking the supper, but you're not lying there on the couch. 
Now he knows that she's right. And she knows that she's right. And he knows that she knows it. And everyone there knows that she's 100% right. And he gets up and he helps with the kids. And she finishes cooking supper. But I guarantee that for the next two hours, over and over in his brain are going to play the words. All right, mister, you make your choice. It's either the kids or the supper, but you're not lying there on the couch. All right, mister, you make your choice. All right, mister. And like a finger pointing. All right, mister. All right, mister. Over and over it will play in his brain. Now he knows he's wrong. It's obvious that he's doing the wrong thing. But no one likes to be spoken to that way. And two hours later, when the kids are kind of calmed down and things have settled down and she wants to sit down and spend some quality time with her husband, guess what he's feeling? She sits down next to him on the couch, and inside his mind, he says to himself, Oh, my goodness, I married a drill sergeant. All right, mister, make your choice, either the kids or the supper. I don't like this woman. Now, isn't that sad? Because she's right. She knows that she's right. He knows that he's right. And sadly enough, she stepped outside of the bounds of marriage. Because much like violating the rule of being bonded one to the other and not having outside romantic interests is a rule that you're friends one to another. And no matter what the cause and no matter what the justification, and even if she's right, when she speaks to him not like a friend, it makes it very difficult for him to be married to her. But she's right. She's 100% right. And even he knows it. And that's true. And if we were dealing with right and wrong, justified or not justified, if we were dealing with a court of law, there wouldn't be a question. But the problem is that this relationship is so delicate. It's reim, ahuvim, friends who love each other. And the minute you step outside of the bounds of friends who love each other, what you're doing is damaging the relationship. And one of the rules about friends are that friends don't boss friends around. Friends don't have a right to dictate rules. Friends don't have a right to say, this is what's going to happen. Friends act as friends, accepting, tolerant people who share their life together. And being right and being happily married are often not the same thing. And this concept, I believe, plays to bear so many, so many times in a marriage. Because when Hassan and Kala have that dream world that we're going to agree on everything and all of my needs will be met, my wife will be my loyal maidservant waiting on my hand in need, my husband will meet all of my emotional needs, marriage will cure all that ails me and everything's going to be perfect. And then they get married and they find that it's not quite that way. And what they find is that guaranteed there are many, many issues in their marriage. Many things that he does that bothers her. Many things that she does that bothers him. I don't care how perfect the two individuals are. Each human being is unique. Each human being has a different way of doing things. And every single marriage has many, many issues that have to be negotiated, that have to be worked out. Where to live and how to spend money and what type of lifestyle and where do we go for Shabbos and how do we... The list goes on and on. Thousands of decisions, certainly in a month, in a week, on a regular basis, couples have to make tremendous, tremendous amounts of decisions and I guarantee that there will be untold numbers of differences between you and your spouse. And even worse, maybe she has an annoying habit. Maybe he has one of those issues or problems. Maybe he brings things to the marriage that you really don't like. Or she brings things that really bother you. And here's the point. To be happily married, you have to clearly understand your relationship. And that relationship is defined by the rules, friends who are lovers Friends first, lovers second. You are equal partners with different roles, and no one is the boss, no one's in charge, no one has the right to say this is the way it's going to be because I said so. And I want to share with you how far this concept goes. 
Imagine you have a young married woman, Shabbos morning she goes to shul, and she comes back home, and lo and behold, she sees on her living room couch is her husband, smoking a cigar, eating a ham sandwich. Oh my goodness, Chil Shabbos, and Tri- what are you doing? Now surely you'll tell me, in this situation, she has every right to demand that he stops, decease, immediately stop eating that ham, stop smoking that cigar. She has every right to do that, right? And I'd like to share with you that she has no right to do that. If she were his Rebbe, if she were his mentor, she would every right. But she is neither of those. She is a friend who is a lover, and friends don't have rights to demand. Friends don't demand. There are only three times in a marriage when a husband or wife has a right to demand. There are only three rules that a spouse violates, and the other one has a right to demand. One is if one of the spouses is doing something that's legitimately dangerous. If he's driving on the highway 95 miles an hour, you have a right to demand, you're endangering my life, stop it. If he or she acts outside the confines of a marriage, she begins a business and has a boss, and they're a little too friendly together, and spending too much time together, he has a right to demand that she stop it. And if either one is physically or mentally abusive, you have no right to do that. But I'd like to share with you, other than those three cases, neither partner has a right to demand anything. Because demanding means that I'm the boss, I'm in charge, and guess what? That's not the relationship. No one signed up for that, no one agreed to that, and it wasn't in any of the documents. If you look in the Ksuba, nowhere does it say, I'm in charge or you're in charge, I'm the boss, you're the servant, I'm the master. Nowhere. The relationship is friends who are lovers. Friends are equals. Equals are on the same par. And friends don't boss friends around, even if they're right, and even if they're correct. And again, just as if one of the partners steps out of the confines of the marriage by taking on a romantic interest outside of the marriage, that's a violation of the basic covenant, a violation of the basis of the entire marriage. So too, when one stops at being a friend, They're stepping outside the role of the marriage, even if they're right. Now, if a woman comes home and sees her husband on the couch, smoking a cigar, eating a ham sandwich on Shabbos, she has every right to say that this marriage no longer works for me. This arrangement that we are friends who are lovers, I cannot continue this. It wasn't what I bought into, it wasn't what I agreed to, certainly not what I expected, and I want out. But as long as she remains in that relationship, she has no right whatsoever, even if she's 100% right. The Torah is made on it. She has no right as a wife to demand. She has no right to say, this is what has to happen. And I believe that this concept is fundamental to understanding a marriage. And this concept is something that is violated on such a regular, ongoing basis. And it becomes a very, very sore point for couples. Now let's understand something. Sharing life is not easy. Sharing every decision in your life with another human being isn't easy, even if you're the easiest going person in the world. And mix in gender differences, and immediately you'll understand it becomes very difficult. I bought an inexpensive shirt a while back. It was a looked to me like a very nice white shirt. And it was, the tailoring was fine, the material was fine, and it was being sold very, very inexpensively, so I bought it. I didn't think much about it, it was made in Bulgaria, but when I put it on, I couldn't get the shirt on. But, but it wasn't that it was too tight, it was that they put the buttons on the wrong side. Men's shirts have the buttons on the right side. Women's shirts often have it on the other side. Because it was made in Bulgaria and they didn't know the convention, they put the buttons on a man's shirt on the wrong side. And for the life of me, I couldn't button the thing because since the time I'm a little boy, I'm used to buttoning buttons from the other side. And if that seems like a minor difference, it is. But if you would like to understand why it is that 
husband and wife fight so many times, it's so often because they don't relate to their differences. They don't understand their differences. They get bossy and bratty with the attitude that what I'm saying is right and I'm appropriate and justified in what I'm doing. And they step out of the role of being a friend and they step into the role of being a boss. No one signed up to have a boss. No one agreed to it. And once you step into that role, you're going to find a lot of trouble. And I believe the vast majority of fights, certainly in the beginning years, are because he and she both don't understand where the other one is coming from. They don't relate to where they're coming from. They snap conclusions, reach decisions, and act like a boss saying this is what's going to be. And I'll show you quite how far this goes. Let's go back to the case of the woman with her husband's on the couch, and she's three kids, and she's cooking dinner. And let's look at it from her perspective and from his perspective. Now, the facts from her perspective is that she's stressed. She worked a long day. She barely had time to buy this stuff for supper. She came home, and the kids are out of control. It's really an untenable position, and he's laying there on a couch like a bum. He, he just doesn't care. And from her perspective, he deserves it, but good. Now, what are the facts from his perspective? He's tired, not motivated, cranky. Obviously, what she's feeling at that moment is betrayed, let down. This is my husband. This is my friend. This is the one who's with me, my supporter. Now, you have a decision to make at this moment, and this decision will affect the rest of your marriage. Is your husband or your wife a reasonable person? And you have to make that decision early in the game. If you married a creep and a bum, if you married an evil individual, find a rov to get a get. But assuming that that's not the case, assuming that you didn't marry Attila the Hun and you didn't marry Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, assuming that you married a reasonable person, then what you have to do in that case is ask yourself, What's going on? Why would a reasonable guy act like such a callous creep? Any decent human being wouldn't sit there when his wife is suffering so. So let's climb into his world and view it from his perspective. Would you like to know why he's sitting there while his wife suffers? Would you like to know why he's reading the paper while his wife is so tensed and bothered and troubled? I'd like to share with you the most likely reason is because he's clueless. He doesn't get it. He just doesn't realize it. And you're saying, what, come on, what, is he mentally retarded? He how, how can he be so foolish? And I'd like to share with you that that happens so often in a marriage. And so often it is that he and she are coming from such vastly different viewpoints that he doesn't get her, she doesn't get him, and they might as well be talking to the wall. Let me give you an example just to illustrate. A couple walk into the living room, and there's some newspapers spread on the floor. The man sees a clean room. He may not even notice the newspapers, and if he does, so what? Okay, no big deal. To the woman, oh my goodness, the room is such a mess. I'm embarrassed. It's a pigsty. I, I, can't, I can't even think of people coming over now. Now here's the question. If it bothers her so, why didn't he just pick up the newspapers 10 minutes ago when he was in the room? Why didn't he just put them away? The answer is he probably didn't even see them and probably didn't even realize it. And now that she's losing it, he looks at her like, what is your problem? Pick up the newspapers and we'll be done. What are you carrying on for? What are you ranting and screaming and crying for? We'll just pick up the newspapers and the room will be clean. And who's right? The answer is, it's completely irrelevant. They're both right, they're both wrong. It doesn't matter. She's looking at the world from her perspective, and he's looking at the world from his perspective. And if you would like to be happily married, you have got to learn to view the world from your spouse's perspective, because if you don't, you have very little chance of being happily married. Because each of them is, are doing something that from their perspective is absolutely justified. When that guy was sitting on the couch while his wife was cooking, what he was doing was what any normal husband would do. He had a hard day. He's stressed out. He just wants to vegetate. 
And he doesn't even see his wife's pain. And doesn't even recognize the problem. And out of the blue, she starts pulling on this drill sergeant routine. All right, mister, get up. All right, get up. What is, what is a problem? What is wrong with this woman? I married a military sergeant. What, what business is this? This is not a woman. This is a, oh my goodness, what did I get into? So who's right? <clears throat> Isn't she right? Isn't she 100% correct in what she's saying? It's so irrelevant that asking the question means that you don't understand a marriage. She has her perspective and he has his. And the only way that they as a couple will succeed is if they're able to communicate. And I'd like to share with you the first rule in communication. The first rule of communication is that Navua stopped with the destruction of the first base of Migdash. And what it means in plain, simple language is there's no prophecy anymore, and very few people are skilled at mind reading. And the reason why she acts the way she does, the reason why he acts the way he does, is because they can't read each other's minds. And as long as you keep your mind to yourself, and as long as you don't express your opinion, I guarantee your husband will not understand you, your wife won't understand you, you will remain in your world, she in her world, and your marriage will suffer. And the first mistake we make in marriage is we assume that it's obvious that anybody would understand it. As a matter of fact, I tell all my girlfriends, every one of them would relate to the fact that, that he's being a creep and he should just get up and help. Any normal girl would be right there in the kitchen helping me, right? My sisters would, certainly my mother would. Why isn't he? Obviously because he's a creep, right? Wrong. Obviously because he's a guy and doesn't even get it, doesn't even realize that he's supposed to help, and doesn't even process it. Now, I'm not telling you this is all the time. There are some times when a, a spouse will act like a creep, and it's definitely part of the marriage. But the vast majority of the time, the reason why he does what he does and she does what she does is because they're in different worlds and they can't read each other's minds and they have all types of projections and all types of logic to explain why they're doing it. And because she can't read his mind and she assumes that he understands the stress that she's under, that he sees how difficult it is for her and he doesn't get off the couch, she projects onto him an entire personality. He's a creep and a bum, and he's callous and he's hard, and he just doesn't care. And she creates an entire persona, projects it onto her husband, and couples do this day in and day out. They create false illusions of their spouse, and they repeat it to themselves again and again and again. And when you hear a couple that are fighting... And you hear the description of each other. And you say, wait a minute, but I know that person. That's not the nature of that person. She's not domineering. She's not bossy. She's not a brat. Why is he describing her that way? And the answer is very simple. He's describing her that way because he perceives her that way. But he perceives her that way because he doesn't understand what's motivating her. He doesn't understand what's driving her. He doesn't understand what she's feeling. And the only solution is something called communication. And if you'd like to know one of the absolute fundamentals for successful relationships in any endeavor, in any human interaction, it's the ability to communicate. And I'd like to spend a few minutes on the basics of communication. There are three parts to any successful communication. It's what you say, when you say it, and how you say it. Let's start with the what you say. The huge difference in the world in communication is between I and you. Any sentence that begins with you is complaining and criticizing. You were late. You bounced the check. You, you, you is a finger pointing at your spouse that's blaming, that's criticizing, that is very, very bitter and very difficult for your spouse to swallow. Any sentence that begins with I is communicating. I felt embarrassed. I felt so stressed out. I felt you weren't there for me. Even though you said the same thing, it's a world of difference. I have rights as a person in this marriage, and I feel that my needs aren't being met. If a woman says to her husband, 
I feel that I'm not getting the help that I need, that's a reasonable request, assuming that she's reasonable, and assuming that she's not making demands that are outrageous, that's 100% reasonable. But the minute it's not I feel, but it's you, you were late again, you messed up, you couldn't care less, you have a problem, those are very, very harsh words. So the first rule of communication is it's always I, 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 not you, you, you. And the second rule of communication is when to communicate. Well, guess what? When she was communicating to him, that was the wrong time. Vishasmaisa, the time in the moment, is always the wrong time. We human beings are very, very delicate, very fragile egos. We're very emotional. And when we're in the thick and the thin of a situation, we never like to hear it. And the time to communicate to your husband or to your wife what you need in a marriage is not when she's messing up again. It's not when she's keeping you waiting and you call her on the phone and say, why are you doing this again? Why am I waiting again? Why don't you just get it together? That's not the time to communicate. The time to communicate is when things are calm, when the kids aren't screaming, when no one is acting like a perceived jerk or a real jerk, and when things are in a much better state, then you communicate. And now the episode is how to communicate. So to understand how to communicate, I have one very simple question. How many people do you know who feel that they are blameworthy? Right? Meaning, like, how many people do you know who say, you know, I'm really a blameworthy person. I really should be blamed for a lot of things, and no one's blamed me today. I, I'm going to find someone who's going to blame me, who's going to point the finger at me and accuse me of, of messing up or not doing something or being late or being sloppy or being lazy or whatever. I just need to be blamed because that's, I'm a blameworthy kind of person. So I have not yet met anyone like that. And as a matter of fact, not a single human being I know likes to be blamed for anything, even when they know that they're guilty of it. And it's a rather strange thing that we human beings could be so intelligent, we could be insightful, we could be brilliant, but we we become utterly dumb, blind, and deaf when we're talking to other people. And I almost wish that I could make a plaque to put on every human being's neck that they should wear, it goes across their chest, and it says the word, danger, feelings inside. Meaning to say, when you're speaking to your husband or you're speaking to your wife, remember, it's a human being, not an object, not a thing to blame, not a problem, a human being with real emotions. And just like you would react poorly to harsh tones and harsh words, so too will he or she. And even though that's so obvious, and even though you don't even have to say it, we as spouses fall prey to this problem over and over and over. How many times do you have a guy say to himself the following words? That's it. I am going to give it to her, but good. She deserves it. She has it coming to her. I am going to let her have it. And someone will say, but what are you going to accomplish? What are you going to accomplish? I have to let her know the truth. She has to know what she's doing is wrong, and I'm going to let her have it, but good. Nar. Have you ever seen that work? Have you ever dealt with any human being who said, Oh my goodness, you're right. I fall before you in humble humility. I have failed again. You are right and and I'm wrong. It never works. It never, ever, ever works. And as much as we can know it, as much as we can understand it, we fall prey to this time after time after time. And the words to a husband are, remember that your wife has a very sensitive heart. She desperately needs you to cherish her. She's hanging on your every word. And you have to be careful to be soft. You have to be careful to use words that are very, very gentle. And a woman, when talking to her husband, remember he has a sunburn on his ego. He has a very delicate male ego. Choose your words very wisely. And if you would like to communicate to your husband, to your wife, use this formula, and I guarantee you'll succeed. Number one, it's I, not you. Number two, it's never bishasmaisa, never in the heat of the moment. It's at a different time when things are calm, when you settle down. Maybe it's during you once a week when you go out. And before you say a word, you say five compliments, five of them, and count them. Five compliments to one 
word of what you'd like improved. So for instance, let's imagine in that case, she is not too happy with the way he carried on. And by the way, she has a right to ask him nicely if he could help then, but he didn't or whatever, he didn't get it. So later on at a different time when things are calm, things are smooth, she goes over to him, they sit down, they're talking about different things, and she says to him as follows, Ruven, you know, I, I just want to share with you, you're a great husband, and I appreciate so much how you look out for me, and you take care of me and the kids, and I have such a secure feeling when you're, when you're with me, and I'm so confident about our future, and in the entire world, you're the only person that I want to be with. Five compliments. And she continues, and at the same time, I just wish that you'd help more with the kids. I just feel left alone in it. I feel that I'm not getting enough help. Now, will those words guarantee her success? I don't know. There are husbands who are creeps, and there are times when people are bothered by things and it won't get through. But those words are spoken with wisdom, not at the moment, not when people are heated, at a different time, and she recognizes appropriately and properly the milas, the things that her husband brings to the table, and she expresses her needs, not accusing him, not calling him a lazy bum and a creep, and how could you sit there while you... But expressing her needs. It bothers me. It embarrasses me. I need. And those are legitimate needs, and those are legitimate issues, and a person in a marriage has every right to express that, and assuming that you married a reasonable person, they will hear it. But there's one more step that's critical. How many issues do you get to ask for at one time? Right? Let's say you did it all right. It wasn't at the moment, and you said your five compliments, and it was all I. How many issues do you get to ask for at one time? So let's assume for a minute he's late and he's sloppy and he bounces checks, and he doesn't help enough, so... You ask for three or four or five or ten or fifteen. You get to pick one issue. One. One issue and one issue only. You say it once and you say it another time. If it doesn't work, you'll say it one more time after that. And you've done your job as a friend communicating your needs. But you see, when you do this, you're acting as a friend who loves the spouse in a marriage, as you're supposed to act, reim ahuvim, friends who are lovers, friends who are living together, working together, bonded. But if you have a goal to fix your spouse, to improve him or her, to finally straighten her out, because this has got to go, I'm afraid you're going to have a lot of trouble. Because your role in life is not to be the mentor, the rebbe, the, or the asra of your wife or husband. And this surfaces many times, especially in the beginning. A husband says, I have a problem with my wife. She just doesn't dress near enough for me. And it bothers me. It bothers me. What do you want me to do? You want me to just ignore it? You want me to just shut up and just not, not deal with it? So a husband has every right as a friend, as a lover, to gently, nicely sit down with his wife and explain how he feels. I feel embarrassed. I feel it's not appropriate. I feel it's not the way a Jewish woman should dress. He made his request, and she has a choice. She listens or she doesn't. But this is the point. If she listens, that's great. And if she doesn't, does he then by default have the right to berate her, to mock her, to embarrass her, to put her down, to, oh, what kind of woman is this? What's the matter with you? You have no chashivas of Torah, and you're not even from, and what's wrong with you? And what's, um, I don't know, but I haven't seen anywhere that he was given such a right. But, but he's right. She's really not dressing appropriately. And that is correct. And it may bother him. And part of life is learning to deal with things. And part of life is recognizing what your role in a marriage is. As partners together, you have to work to please each other. As partners together, you have to work on issues. And as partners together, you have to recognize what tolerance and understanding is about. And to a husband, sneeze is not a big deal. 
If he wears a black suit or a blue suit or a brown suit or a purple suit, it doesn't really matter to him. But to his wife, it really does. And it might be a tremendous nesayan to her. And it's not that she's not a hush of woman, <clears throat> not that she's not into it, but he, from his world, cannot even recognize the temptation, <clears throat> the desire, what it means. To a woman, <clears throat> it defines who she is. You want me to walk out like people think I don't know how to dress. It reflects in her, in the essence of her, and it's something that requires a tremendous amount of work. And the reason why he's intolerant and the reason why he can't accept it is because he's judging her with his system of emotions. <clears throat> to him, it's not a big deal. If Chazal wrote, you shall never wear a red tie ever again, he wouldn't wear a red tie and it's not a big deal. But to her, it's a very different world. And the minute you start judging your spouse with your system of emotions, your value systems, and then you act as a boss, and you act as a mentor or a rebbe, and you get very, very moral and stand on the high ground and stand down and command upon the poor husband or wife, you've stepped outside the bounds of marriage. There are many things that you're not going to be happy with about your spouse. <clears throat> many things hopefully your spouse will be able to change <clears throat> and many things that he or she won't be able to change. And as long as both of you have this understanding <clears throat> that you are friends, friends who are working on this together, <clears throat> friends who enjoy each other's company, friends who share things together, friends who try to do things for each other, and friends who recognize that you're of different species, of different emotionalities, <clears throat> of different idiosyncrasies, and you're vastly different, then you can remain friends, lovers, and be happily married. And the minute that you decide that this is something I cannot accept, I cannot accept laziness. I just can't tolerate it. I'll accept anything but a guy who's lazy. That I have no tolerance for. I can accept anything but a woman who cannot keep a house. Unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. What you've done with that statement what you've done with that attitude is stepped outside the bounds of your marriage. But I'm right. Isn't a woman's role to keep the house? Isn't she responsible to have things neat and proper? Isn't it part of her role? I don't know. You might be right. You might be wrong. But you stepped outside the bounds of your marriage. You became a boss. You became a dictator. You became in charge. And I never saw that in any agreement. Reim Ahuvim means friends. Friends who are equal equal partners with different roles, but friends who work together, friends who are accepting, friends who are tolerant. Oh, friend. What friend? Do you know how many times he left his socks on the floor? And you know how many times he left his dishes over here? And you know how many times he left everything around? Friends don't act that way, do they? Huh. And it's true that you don't act that way. And if he was a friend, he would instantly change and be the neatest guy in the world. But guess what? People don't instantly change. And you have every right to sit your husband down and explain to him how you feel when the apartment looks messy. You have every right to share with him what it would mean to you if the house looked nicer. But the minute you become intolerant, the minute you become the boss, and this is what's expected, what you've done is you've judged him with your scale of emotions, your scale of the world, and you've become a boss and you've stepped outside the bounds of marriage, akin to his having a secretary that he flirts with, that he goes to Las Vegas with, you'd have no tolerance for him doing that. Well, guess what? He doesn't have a lot of tolerance for when you get bossy and bratty, and even if you think you're right, and even if all your friends say you're right, and even if your mother and your mother-in-law and everyone says you're right, well, guess what? He's your husband, <clears throat> he you're married to, and your friends in this together. Friends don't boss friends around. Friends don't get intolerant. Friends don't sit there looking down on the other one. Friends are together, working in harmony. Friends first, lovers second. And I cannot put enough emphasis on this, and I cannot stress this enough, and I can't tell you how many times a husband or a wife will say the line, well, if he was really a friend, he would change. If he really loved me, then for sure he would put his socks where they should be and his <clears throat> dishes where they should be. And it happens to be correct that as his <clears throat> job in the marriage is to make sure that he's neat, 
and to make sure their socks go in the hamper and the dishes go in the dishwasher, wherever they're supposed to go. And that's certainly his role. And if he has an annoying habit, it's his job to work on it. And at the same time, it's her job to recognize that change is something that doesn't come easily. Change is something that's very hard. And even if he loves her, it doesn't mean that it's easy for him to change. I'll give you a personal example. I very much am machshiv davening. I am the love davening. Shachras to me is something that I consider a hugely critical part of my day. And yet, on a daily basis, I'll come late. Five minutes late, sometimes ten minutes late. And I'll berate myself. What's the matter with you? Why are you, why are you doing it? You're ruining your dominant. I can be into it. And I'm upset with myself. So here's the question. Why don't I just come on time? I'm machshev dominant tremendously. And I greatly enjoy it. I love it. And I know it's so important. So why don't I just come on time? And the great secret, the great answer is, because I am a human being. And we human beings have a difficult time changing my father is a Yekka, born in Berlin. I was born from my father, but I did not inherit those traits. And for me, being organized on time is something that's not natural. So it must have been a cakewalk for my wife, right? And she marries a Yekka, so Machaya, right? Well, it wasn't. And I had to work on being neat and on time and organized. And unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that she had to work a little bit on being tolerant with my But that's not nice. That's not fair. Why don't you just change? I assure you. If I were a Malach Elohim, I would have changed dramatically and instantly, and I would have been the most Masudr, the good person. But come on, <clears throat> doesn't Rabbi Sosalanta speak about Nikayan, Nikayan and Seder, and aren't those important Midas? Yes, they are. And more importantly, they're important to my wife. And I know it bothers her. So why don't you just do it? Because that's life. And change isn't something that's instant, isn't something that's simple. And as friends in a marriage... We have to remain open, understanding, tolerant, not judgmental, and surely not judging our spouse by our systems, by our way of viewing things and looking at things. I think this chazal is very powerful and very eye-opening. Yaakov Avinu cried. He lifted his voice and wailed. Why? Because he was joining his bashert. They weren't to be buried together. There was something lacking. When a husband and wife are together, it's forever, in unison, a complete bonding. All of the things that we describe about working on a marriage, the romantic piece and the infatuation and the physical part and even the appreciation are all ways of getting to the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is reim ahuvim, friends, friends who are lovers, friends who support each other, friends who are in this thing called life together, friends who love one another. That goal is something that Yaakovinu felt then, and he realized part of it was lacking. He wouldn't be buried with it. He felt it was a chasarn, and he cried, because that's the sensitivity of a tzaddik. And it's something that we have to understand. The roles in a marriage really are very defined. Each has their role. Equal partners with different roles in the marriage. Each has to be tolerant of the nature of the other. Each has to understand why the other does what they're doing. And the minute you accept that fallacy that so much of the world accepts, that it must be that my husband's a creep and a bum and an evil and whatever it is, you're being foolish. Because again, unless you married a bum, unless you married a creep, it's very likely that he's a good guy. And it's very likely that she's a good person. And when she does things that don't make sense to you, and when she bosses you around, one of the things you have to do is ask yourself, why? And you have to sit down with her and communicate. And you do the same thing that she has to do. <clears throat> Number one, not when she's yelling at you or bossing you around or acting bratty. You take her out and you have a nice time together. And then you give five compliments. I, <clears throat> you're the best wife in the world. I can't begin to express how much you do for me and how much you help the kids and my, me and the family. I can't describe how happy I am with you. And at the same time, there's something that I feel I need. But it's I. <clears throat> I feel. I feel hurt when, you, <clears throat> when I perceive that you're not acting like a friend. You know the other night when you said those words, I know you're right, but it hurt me. Why? Because I felt that you weren't a friend. 
I felt you were my boss. I felt you were acting in a way that was very hard for me to live with. And those words spoken with humility, spoken not to be judgmental or critical, spoken in the right time and the right way, enter a reasonable person's heart. And the key to a successful marriage is using all of the tools. You have to work on the bond. You have to work on infatuation. You have to work on spending time together. You have to work on being together as a couple. And you have to be able to communicate. And communication doesn't mean just being mavater and everything, just shutting it down and shutting it down, shutting it down. The more you can be mavater, the better. But there are certain things that you need. And there are certain things that really bother you. And you have to communicate them. You have to express them. And I have to share with you something that may not be so much nogay at this point, but it's a critical point that I wouldn't want to leave out. And that is husband and wife being together physically also is something they have to communicate about. It's something that men and women work differently in, different cadences, different amounts, different needs, different things, different timing. And a husband and wife have to communicate. In the very beginning, it's not, it may not be, Comfortable, it may take a while, but it has to be something that she explains, that he explains, and they have open communication about, that they speak about his needs, her needs, what I need, what you need, and you speak about it as openly as possible, speaking with the understanding that we're friends, friends who are there to help each other, friends who are there to make each other's life more pleasant, more beautiful, and we're in this together, and in that framework and that mindset together you speak what could i do and it should be better for you what could i do to be better for you how could i help how could you help and you join together as ray mahuvim i believe this concept is so fundamental and is violated on such a regular basis good husbands and good wives on a regular basis violated now does that mean for the rest of your life you're always going to be sensitive and careful no all of us are going to drop the ball at certain points, and all of us are going to act like a boss and we're going to act inappropriate. And it doesn't matter as long as it's only every once in a while, as long as we recognize it, and as long as we make up for it. The minute you understand that I'm right, my way is right, and it's my husband that's a problem, or my wife that's the issue, your marriage is going to suffer. Your partner's working together, no one's right, no one's wrong, no one's a boss. No one's a worker. We're in it together. And I want to close with one last <clears throat> observation. As I mentioned before, <clears throat> I had the opportunity, the tremendous chus of seeing my Rebbe, the Roshiva Zetzal, <clears throat> in a very close <clears throat> way. <clears throat> Many of the Talmudim were in the house on a regular basis. And I have never <clears throat> in my life seen a woman <clears throat> treat her husband with the respect, the deference, the reverence that the Rebbe treated the Roshiva with. And it was mutual, and certainly Roshiva treated the Rebbe with tremendous respect and deep regard. And just to illustrate how far it went, Roshmul Kamenetsky one time came over to me and he said, you know, the Rebbe guards him too much. The Rebbe too much. And I explained to you what he was saying. Roshiva Zatzal, especially in later years, wasn't well, and it was considered... Often time that he was beyond where he should be. The Talmudim would constantly ask questions and constantly <clears throat> ask and ask, and it was a very difficult load that the Rashiva Zetzal used to carry. And oftentimes the Rebbitzin played, excuse my expression, almost policewoman. She wouldn't let the Talmudim in. In fact, when I first came to Yeshiva, <clears throat> the Rebbitzin and I, <clears throat> I wasn't so popular with the Rebbitzin. My goal <clears throat> was to learn, my goal was to <clears throat> learn from the Rashiva to be <clears throat> as much as I could in his presence. And the Rebbitzin's job, it was to keep me out. <clears throat> and she and I, in the beginning, it wasn't the smoothest relationship. <clears throat> Baruch Hashem, she understood, and it <clears throat> certainly was taken in the right light. But the point is that oftentimes the Rebbitzin would keep people out because the Roshiva doesn't have the strength, and she felt it was damaging to her health, to the health of the Roshiva. And even when Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky called one time, and it was a major issue, and he said, I need to speak to Roshiva. And the Rebbe said, I'm sorry, he's resting. But Roshiva explained it was very important. It was an issue of the Klal. And the Rebbe said, no, I'm sorry. The Roshiva is resting. I can't interrupt him. 
And what she was saying with those words was something so powerful. It could be the president of the United States of America. It could be Rashmul Kamenetsky on the Gedolia door. It doesn't matter. My husband's health comes first. Her primary focus in life was her husband protecting him, being there for him. And that is a marriage. Marriage is when both parties look out for each other, support each other, are friends one with the other. It doesn't start that way. For Yaakov, Vino, and Rachel, it might have started that way. For us in the Chassan and Kala stage, it feels that way. But once real life kicks in, then it takes many, many years till it gets back to the point that it's real. But after many years of working and growing, that's the goal. The goal is to be a oneness, a unity. Along the way, there are going to be ups and downs. But as long as the couple understands each their role, friends, friends who support each other, friends who are there together, they daven, Hashem helps, and they have a beautiful marriage. May Hashem grant us the wisdom and ability to put this into practice.